Welcome to Res Talk, your source for the latest news, opinions, and training from top building performance, rating, and auditing experts. Here's your host, committed building science enthusiast and registered professional engineer, Bill Spohn. Welcome back to another episode of the Res Talk podcast. It's our goal here at Res Talk to communicate late breaking news and thoughtful insights about a broad array of topics in the rapidly expanding world of residential energy ratings to all the stakeholders in the ResNet ecosystem. Whether you're a housing consumer, rater, builder, realtor, or appraiser, you'll want to hear about the evolving trends in home energy ratings. I'm your host, Bill Spohn, and I've worked in the HVACR and building performance markets for almost 30 years and have been interfacing with the team at ResNet for nearly that whole time. In today's podcast, we begin part one of a three-part series on cracking open the details of the ACCA, ResNet, and ANSI Standard 310. We're joined by Alex Meany of Mean HVAC Consulting and Design. Alex is an expert in HVAC system design. Listen in as Alex brings, in his words, well above averaged insights into the important topic of load calculations. He'll detail out the various ACCA manuals J, S, D, LLH, T, and ZR involved in the process of HVAC design, as well as factors about the origin of many of the calculations. Now, there were several aha moments as we got deep into the aspects of answering a seemingly simple question. What is the heat and moisture loss or gain per hour of a home under design conditions? After listening, you'll better understand the power and importance of accurate load calculations. So let's see what Alex has to say. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Bill. Alex, you may not be a familiar name to some of our listeners. So give some background. Yeah, I haven't run into a whole ton of people in the ResNet world, but a decent number, actually. I am Alex Meany, formerly of Wrightsoft, might actually be my full name, I think. <laughs> I was the head of training for Wrightsoft for about 17 years and was their head of tech support before that, tech support guy before that, sales guy before that. I wore all the hats. They actually tricked me into working there as a temp. <laughs> and I just sort of wouldn't go away. But yeah, I spent almost the last two decades, decade and a half, traveling around the country, teaching thousands of HVAC designers how to design HVAC systems within Wrightsoft software, which is one of basically two programs out there that can do solid beginning to end room by room load calculation duct design your manual js and d procedures and over the years have added to my skill set the classes started off the owner of the company was of the impression that the classes would be they'll know how to do all the manual stuff show them how to use software and that lasted like a week all the questions were about the manuals so i steeped myself in them and got my epic certification and now i think the probably the largest feather in my hat was on the working group to revise the manual s in its latest edition help write some of the new rules that'll be coming out about how to size an air conditioning system so why don't you give a quick stepping through the various aca manuals again with the focus on our target audience here listener whoever's designing the hvac system is going to follow a series of procedures set out by ACCA manuals. Most of the time, that's going to be the HVAC contractor. Occasionally, you might get a third-party designer. I do a little bit of that on the side for contractors who are in trouble these days. And 
it all starts with the manual J. Manual J, everybody always wants to know what the letters stand for. Manual J stands for jewel. Not like the thing in a ring, but J-O-U-L-E. It's a unit of heat that, of course, we don't use in HVAC design. Maybe the manual BTU just didn't sound right. Didn't roll off the tongue. Yeah. Shoot, even a manual W would have been a little closer for watts. But yeah, so manual J is the load calculation. Load calculation, surprisingly, a lot of people think load calculation tells you what size equipment you need. Sort of. What a load calculation actually does is determine how much heat the building gains, how much moisture the building gains, and how much heat the building loses per hour under a specific set of design conditions. The manual S for equipment selection, S for selection, is the next step of that where you need to determine the actual performance of the HVAC system, you would think. Here's a shocker for everybody, and I think it's going to become a lot less shocking pretty soon because there's some big changes coming to this, but AHRI ratings for cooling equipment in particular, or the cooling side of equipment in particular, are not necessarily going to reflect the actual performance of a system very well. And so there are procedures you have to follow using the published data from the manufacturers to figure out how a system is going to really perform so that you can best match that to the load. Your job is to try to get the capacity of your system dialed in so it is very similar, as close as you can get to the load calculation, typically without going under in terms of sizing your system properly. And there's a bunch of extra procedures thrown in there if it's geothermal and water source heat pumps and things like that. And as I previously mentioned, there's a new one coming out over the next, it's in the current code cycle now. So probably not for another year or two. It's got to go out to public review and all the changes and yada, yada. It's got to be published. It's a whole thing, but they are making some revisions to that. And then the next part of the process, uh, part of the process, I think we mess up a whole heck of a lot in the HVAC industry is the duct design process. Manual D, that's an easy one to translate. That's for duct. And it's the procedure you use to properly size uh, a duct system. It's not as simple as if any of you have because I've had this experience before I was the trainer for Rightsoft. I knew I wanted to be. So I paid for some classes that I took at local HVAC distributors and technical colleges, things like that. And it was an invaluable experience because I learned all of the wrong ways that everybody else learns how to do it. (laughs) A lot of really incorrect rule of thumb stuff presented as this is the right way to do it. And so fair warning to anybody out there who's maybe taken a duct design class or gotten that one hour crash course that they sometimes offer. That's not duct design. That's magic number thinking. Usually there's a bunch of math you have to do to determine how much resistance there is in a system so that you can dial in the sizes of your ducts to create the right amount of resistance so that your fan power and the resistance of the system balance out and give you the right amount of airflow and deliver that airflow to all of the rooms individually in amounts that we need and and we're shooting for. And that's determined by some procedures in that book as well. There are another couple of commonly used books. The manual T is for sizing terminals, which is a very generic term that nobody uses for registers and grills and diffusers and that kind of thing. The very end of the system, making sure that things aren't too loud, but also making sure that air is 
being distributed and mixed properly and not creating any comfort issues within the space. That's what manual T is about. That's not a standard. It's actually a guidebook as opposed to a standard. It's hard to standardize the series of compromises that balancing between what would be the best or what would be the most acceptable bad outcome of something, because there's a lot of that. We rely on one system to do both heating and cooling. It's when you're sizing grills, you have to make some choices about what's important. Heating air tends to want to float up. Cooling air tends to want to fall down. So you have to take some different approaches. And so it's really hard to standardize something like that. Although me and a few folks this summer are going to take a closer look at it and see if there's maybe some room for that. We'll see. There's some other standards that overlap it. And we're going to see if there's maybe a way to make some sense of that. And the only other one that would probably come in pre-rough-in is possibly manual ZR, which is the zoning manual. Z for zoning, R for residential zoning. And that provides some procedures for locating zones, how to break the building up into different zones, what's the most effective way. Again, there's a lot of pro-con here, so not a standard because there's no one right way to do it. But when you do it, here's how, how to calculate airflow, et cetera etc. It actually, there are some elements of the manual J that handle that as well. So it's a little bit of an overlap there in terms of math. There's also a standard since resident often deals with lower energy homes by default. Oh yeah. LLH. The LLH. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So LLH, to my knowledge, doesn't create any new math, no new standards, which I was a little disappointed by because there are some holes in the current standards that to make it really difficult to stay within the lines on very low load homes. An 18,000 BTU air conditioner jumps to a 24,000 BTU air conditioner. That's a 33% jump. And I'm supposed to keep single stage equipment, not undersized by more than 15%. Yeah. Have fun with that guys. They're in my opinion, not a popular one among the reviewer community, but in my opinion, it's really important to understand the spirit of the law in some of these situations because the letter of the law, technology keeps outpacing the code books. <laughs> and so the letter of the law sometimes won't make a physical sense, like won't, won't be a possibility. So LLH was an attempt at dealing with some of these issues while coloring inside the lines while staying within the rule book. And what they did is they identified many of the problems. Sizing grills is actually one of them. Get these very large spaces with very small airflows needed because they're so efficient. How do you mix the air in that room and get the air in the entire space to turn over while following all the rules that they set out? So it's actually one of the more difficult tasks. And they set out some recommendations using high velocity nozzle systems on low velocity equipment, by the way, because at those low airflows, they will do a good job of attenuating sound. They'll perform, yeah. Yeah, they'll perform reasonably well. It's more pro-con stuff. It's a less uh, standard and more zoom in with the existing set of standards to where are the pitfalls when you are using these standards in these circumstances and how to sort of dig yourself out of those holes using the tool book that, or the tool set that we have. And so there's a fair amount of out-of-the-box thinking in it, which makes it a very, very useful manual. But the rule book doesn't really change, or the sets of rule books doesn't really change. LLH doesn't supersede anything. 
it just deals with the issues with the rules and tools we have. So how is the data delivered, say, in a manual, Jay? And you mentioned there's a couple of major programs that are out there. What does it look like if a raider is going to see a manual J report? Just conceptualize for us what it looks like. It depends a little bit on the report. There are the two major software. So there's more than two software providers that are ACCA certified. And technically, I think there's one other that can do manual J DNS and certified as being... I may not be giving you an exhaustive list here. So sure, if your listeners know of another program out there, I might miss somebody. But to the best of my knowledge, it's Rightsoft Elite. And AdTech is the third one. And AdTech is usually used, in my experience, people who use it are typically on the retrofit side of things. So it's a little less of a day in, day out, hers Raider would come across it type of thing. You would most likely be seeing Elite and Rightsoft. And their reports are pretty similar. There are some standardized reports that the ACCA has, Form J1 and the right J worksheet, or Manual J worksheet, excuse me. And I like to compare them to tax forms. They're spreadsheet-based. There's columns and rows. You see a breakdown of all the walls in the building, and then a number is assigned to it for how many square feet show up in the building itself, a zone if there are any, and then each room adding up in reverse order there. And so you'll see all of the materials used. Unfortunately, you're going to see something called an HTM value, which is a made-up concept (laughs) from the folks over at the ACCA, and not so much U values and R values, which is where a lot of our codes are written. And so you probably would have a different report. Rightsoft has the component construction report that will break down what those R values are, what those U values are, so you can see what's being used in the building in a little more detail, as opposed to the manual J official codebook kind of thing. Manual J has a nearly exhaustive list of building materials, and each one of them has a little code that you can cross-reference to the actual manual J. I don't think anybody's doing that, but you could. (laughs) And then it lists the HDM value and then the areas. Multiply those up and you add them down the column and there's your load. Now there's more to a load than just building materials. So that's the majority of the report, but you would also have your a listing of how much internal gain you're getting from appliances and people, your duct load from leakage and transfer gains across the surface of the duct, infiltration and ventilation, as well as a couple of other somewhat random things that can occur in an HVAC design like blower heat or hot water piping losses, things like that. I'm looking at the standard right now in section 4.24. They say you you need to know the design basis for the heat gain and load loss, heat loss loads using ECA manual JV8 2013 or JV8 2016. So are those the latest ones? And what are the differences? Ooh, the differences are... I mean, not exhaustive. (laughs) You know exhaustive stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I made that ooh sound because you probably don't want to know the differences. (laughs) The differences are pretty deep in the weeds for most of it. In terms of they added an ability to like an alternate calculation for losses for duct leakage so that people could use actual duct leakage test equipment and relate that to the man- prior to that manual J's calculations for duct losses and gains are 
very widely respective as very effective and sensitive math for wrangling the cats of psychrometrics and heat loss and heat gain that occur in a duct system. Because if your load goes up, then your system gets bigger. And if your system gets bigger, the duct gets bigger. And if the duct gets bigger, the load goes up. And the formulas that Hank Rutowski, the main author of the Manual J, came up with will iterate that and calculate that. And so it was quite a bit of a feat to untangle that from the <laughs> duct leakage calculation. The compromise, by the way, is you still have to describe duct leakage using the Manual J method for the calculation of surface area, but you can pull out the psychrometric part of the air mixing, not just the psychrometric, but the air mixing part of supply and return leakage and calculate it on its own using a duct leakage test. So in the same paragraph there, it talks about using the manual J8, those two versions I mentioned, or the 2017 ASHRAE fundamentals. Is it true the ASHRAE fundamentals are really where the ACA manuals come from? To the extent that I can speak for the ACCA and Hank Rutowski and all those folks. Yeah, 100%. It's called CLTD heat loss heat gain calculation. It's Willis Carrier stuff. No kidding. It goes all the way back. People can argue about who made the first air conditioner, but who created the HVAC industry as we know it? <laughs> That's the guy. We're still using his math. I'm going to do this to you, fair listener. I apologize. But high school physics, there's three types of heat transfer. You've got conduction, which is heat traveling through a surface. And that's a simple formula. It's the U value times the area times the temperature difference. And then you've got convection, which is, for our intents and purposes, it's infiltration, ventilation, and duct leakage. And then you've got radiance. And radiance is the formula that starts to invoke cube law and the cosines of angles to determine projected shade areas and it's why you use software. <laughs> the math gets, I could do a heat loss calculation by hand with nothing but our values to work with. It's that simple. Going back to the conduction. Transfer. Yeah. Going back to conduction and convection, because those are the two things in a heating load. The heat loss is a heating load because your heating loads are calculated at midnight at 2 a.m. when the power, you know, power is out and there's no sunlight. You don't do radiant heat calculations for heating. And I know radiant heating systems, okay, slightly different animal there. There's back losses and things like that. But for the most part, the load calculation doesn't include any radiant math for heating, which makes it something you could legit do by hand. It's a very kind of worst case stuff. And the math is simple. It's three variables and off you go. Radiance is what complicates most of everything. There's other things that are complicated. Infiltration is one of them. But what they had to do is they sort of had to jam because here's the thing. All three of those things are constantly interacting. There's a little letter they like to add to these, some of these formulas that makes everything about a million times more difficult than what we normally deal with. That's the letter T. What's that? Time. Time. Over an hour, over 24 hours, over this. And that's where it gets weird because now conduction has to account for thermal mass. It takes a long time for a heavy wall to heat up. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so that heavy wall at four o'clock in the afternoon in Phoenix, Arizona, where it's very cool at night compared to how hot it is during the day, that wall might not on the inside have achieved its warmest temperature yet 
because it had to warm up all the way from 70 something degrees all the way up to 110, which is a long way to go for a lot of heavy material that can absorb a lot of heat. And so the CLTD method, the cooling load temperature difference method is to adjust what is essentially the temperature difference part of it. And so if you have that big old heavy wall in Phoenix, Arizona, and your design temperature difference is 35 degrees because it's super hot outside, you might only calculate the temperature difference based on 25 degrees or 20 degrees based on something called a, a daily range number. And Manual J handles this with a bunch of tables and codes. They don't really lay the math out. Like they do the math for you and plug it into a table. It's all behind the scenes. So it's a little hard to uncover that. Whereas the ASHRAE handbooks are doing the same thing and laying out the math for doing it. Oh, but they ask you to input. Yeah, they give you a formula for determining the thermal mass effects and how to come up with your own delta T number, your temperature difference number, based on these other factors. There's also the fact that there is a little skin of air on the outside of every surface that adds to insulation. It's the, I forget, there's a name for it. It's not little skin of air. I can't come up with it right off the top of my head. Air film, air film. That's what it's called. Air film. There you go. Yeah. And radiance is all over the place. Radiance is heating up the wall. The people in Arizona know this, right? The west side of the house, the walls were warm in an old, poorly built house. The walls are warmer than they are on the north side. That's for sure. And so we cram that in there too. So the delta T went down for the daily range and the weight of the wall. And it's going to go up again because of a radiance adjustment factor for the sunlight on the wall. And so it's all just being smashed into that poor little temperature difference number to represent the other things that are going on. The core heat transfer is conduction and that's simple math. And then they just adjust that delta T, that temperature difference number to account for the fancier stuff that's happening there. And that comes into the modeler, the designer that uses the program when they talk about the location. Is that part of it? Part of that is tied to the location. Each location is assigned a daily range and that will automatically. So the building material has a CLTD code and based on that code and the daily range number, you determine what the adjustment to your Delta T would be. It's kind of like a three-way thing, outdoor temperature daily range code, construction code, or CLTD group is as officially known. And those CLTD groups exist in the ASHRAE handbooks too. It's the same thing, but ASHRAE is a lot less table-driven and a lot more math-driven, formula-driven. Yeah, you have to do your own math. Whereas the Manual J provided a lot of that stuff and just built it in and made it a lot simpler, even though it doesn't necessarily look it because you're doing all these weird things and going, why am I doing this? And they explain it. If you're willing to read that book, it's huge. If you're willing to read that book, it will tell you why you're doing it. But yeah, there's a lot more going on than the simple math of what looks like UA Delta T. So by the way, remember that HTM number I was telling you about? Yeah. Heat transfer multiplier is what it stands for. In most cases, all it really is, is the U value times the temperature difference, except that temperature difference is not straight up, you adjust that TD to make it your own. And so rather than calling it a temperature difference and then monkeying with it like crazy to make it confusing, there is in manual J, there is a temperature difference and it's just the temperature difference. And your HTM factor, which if you don't want to dig too deep into 
how it works is if you want to just trust the tables, the HTM factor is what's going to adjust that number. It's the U value times the delta T with the delta T adjustment for mass and radiance and whatever else they need to adjust for. And there's even appendix at tables at the end of the 310 standard that go into specifically by state, by county, by weather station. So to get a flavor for the variation, it's right there in the standard. Talks about the 1% cooling temperature, 99% heating temperature. Explain those two columns and maybe the other one, the HDD slash CDD. Okay. So the cooling temperatures, and this actually is something that is being updated every four years. This standard is based on the 2017 data, which is roughly the most recent data. There is technically 2021 data exists, has been gathered, but it hasn't been reviewed, gone through the committee process, blah, 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 to the best of my knowledge. That stuff usually rolls out a year, year and a half later. When it rolls out in 2022 or 2023, it'll be called the 2021 data. And so ASHRAE sets up Well, they don't set it up. People volunteer, organizations volunteer to become a weather station. I do not know what that process looks like, but you get them at international, major airports, not just international airports, military bases, sometimes scientific laboratories, right? Like the NOAA facility, for example, I'm in Massachusetts, the NOAA facility in Cape Cod has a weather location set up where you follow all of their procedures and track the temperatures all the time, hourly throughout the year. And the 1% cooling temperature is not the hottest day of the year, but only 1% of the hours are hotter than this. Because if you design to the hottest day of the year or the hottest temperature of the year, momentary temperature of the year, your system will be oversized every other hour of the year. (laughs) And people aren't usually at or near, and it's usually a pretty low percentage to be at or near the peak, to be at or near the actual mean extreme is what they call it. Because... 2017 data, by the way, or 2021 data for that matter, or any other data, is not the data of that year. It is an average of that data. And I'm calling it an average. It's not, let's Simple add up. Simple math. Yeah, average. let's not all add up 30 numbers and divide by 30. There's a committee process. average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a fancier average than I know how to do it. But it's an average temperature. For example, if I was to set up, if I had an organization, a college or something, and we wanted to do a weather station, we could start tracking the data if we follow all the procedures and you know, get in touch with whoever approves that. But they wouldn't start using it for 10 years because they have to have at least 10 years of data before they start using this because they want a large chunk of, because you get a hot year, you get a cool year. They don't want it messing with that. They want to get a nice average there. So they use at least 10 years. And I think for more established locations, I think they use the last 30 and they cut it off at that, but it is a weighted average. It's a whole thing. And they publish lots and lots of numbers from it. Actually, if you Google ASHRAE Meteo, M-E-T-E-O, it will bring you to a site that's basically a map. And you can just go to a place and right-click at any spot on the map, and it will pull up all the weather locations around there and the data that come with it. It's a very cool visual way to like decide what the most accurate data for your location might be, especially if you're very familiar with it. They accept donations, by the way, just saying, for creating that very useful tool. So mean extreme would be the worst temperature of the year on average, mean average extreme temperature. 
1% is on average 1% of the days are hotter than this. There's a 2% number nobody ever uses unless they're doing some stuff with energy modeling, things like that. And on the heating side, you know, engineers, they like to be consistent. So it's not the 1% heating, it's the 99% heating. Because if we're going to say 1% of the days are hotter than this, well, then it's going to be 99% of the days are hotter than this, meaning 1% of the days are colder. So it's the same concept, just from the other side of the percentage spectrum. And so that's your heating temperature. So 1% of the time or 1% of the hours, it might get colder than that, but that's going to be your design criteria. The HDD and CDD ratio was a lot of work for very little payoff. So I am speaking slightly out of turn. And so on the behalf of Alex Meany and Mean HVAC and nobody else. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Got it. But the idea of heating with a heat pump was still a pretty new idea when they revised the last manual S in a cold climate. Sure. Right. Not in Florida, but in a cold climate. But they were starting to roll with these rules and they wanted to relax the rules for sizing a heat pump if you met certain criteria. And one of those criteria was that you were, in fact, in a heating-dominated climate. And so you would take the heating degree days divided by the cooling degree days. Degree days are a very weird thing that I don't like dealing with. It's a confusing number that just doesn't come up much anymore. People will use them to do operating cost comparisons, like estimate the cost of operation of a system. But everybody uses computers now. There's a more accurate way to do it called bin hours. So instead of this conversion into days, so you have to do less math, you can literally just for every group of hours or for every group of temperatures, there's a certain number of hours. You just use that. So it's what most software uses. HDD and CDD used to be something you could do by hand if you really wanted to. So this ratio was determined or was used to determine whether or not you had a officially were in a quote unquote heating dominated climate. But in order to be using this ratio, if I'm a heating dominated climate, the only place it popped up in the normative standard in the code was if you met two criteria. One, you were a dry climate. Two, you were a heating dominated climate. And if you met those two criteria, then you could oversize a heat pump by more in order to meet the heating needs. They didn't want you doing it if you were in a humid climate because it's going to mess up comfort levels and create potential. I like to joke, if you're an HVAC contractor, you want to cost yourself $10,000, mess up the size of a heating system or undersize a cooling system. If you want to cost yourself a million dollars, oversize a cooling system. Oh, wow. And that's in a humid climate. In a dry climate, it's not, you're not going to run into that because that's the humidity problems where you get the dreaded mold word and you know, all the other things. Yeah. And so if you met these two criteria, you had to be a dry climate and it was a heating dominated climate, then you could size to heat. And in the most recent edition of the manual S, I asked the question, why does it have to be a heating dominated climate? Like why? If it's a dry climate and the the consequences aren't there, why can't I size for heat if I want to just size to size? Like, why aren't I allowed to do this? There's also some pretty complicated things happening with how performance adjusts with airflow. But in a very dry climate, adjusting airflow doesn't have as much of an impact on the performance of a system. And it's because you're not really changing how much moisture is removed versus how much temperature is controlled. 
And there's very different energy levels to those two things happening. Condensation is a much bigger burst of energy than the conduction from the metal to the air. Yeah. And so when you change that phase change, yeah, that phase change really releases a lot of energy. So when you're doing more of that phase change, you are actually increasing your capacity overall because it's just a more you're absorbing heat faster because you're getting more of that burst of energy which meant that people in humid climates who have trouble hitting some of our percentage numbers could manipulate airflow most of the time not all the time but most of the time to fall within the range it's really hard if you're in some place like salt lake city or phoenix arizona to make an adjustment to airflow and get enough of a swing out of the performance of your system to meet all the numbers. And so hopefully it sticks. Review process is the review process. Nothing's set in stone at this point. But the idea is going to be if you meet the dry conditions, just dry. Your sensible heat ratio is 0.95 or higher. That's the of your load, not the equipment. Go ahead and use the heating side, the dry climate sizing rules. We're not going to look at degree days going forward because why did we have that restriction? Because the manual S isn't an energy code. Do you want to make sure it's as small as possible? And there's pros and cons here. Well, yeah, we'd like to make sure it's as small as possible, but we'd really like to heat off of our electric grid. Well, okay. So loosen the rules and let somebody else make that determination because it depends on where you are and what the state of the grid is and the generation is and what would best benefit that community is not going to be the same in every location. So they decoupled that from HVAC design. And now this is going to be let energy people do the energy thing. Let HVAC people do the HVAC thing. Yeah. Right. But be aware of each other. Oh, very much aware of each other. Oh, man. It is my, I'll tell, I will publicly say it. It is my dream to get myself on the next Manual J committee and then go and find all of the CEC, the FSEC, and everybody at ResNet and whoever else and just sit them all down at the table and be like, this is how you calculate building materials. Period. All of you agree on it right now. We're all going to do this and it's all going to play well together because as a software guy, none of it plays well together. None of it. Because they all use just slightly different methods for determining performance. And it's always way out at the margins too. But technically correct is the best kind of correct, I guess. doesn't meet exactly what we say. So you've got to reinvent the wheel when you're transitioning from one to the other. And it's a pain in the, you know what? Yeah. This has been a fascinating interview here, Alex. This is the first in a series to crack open the standard and showing us so much of the detail and nuance behind just that basic step there. Yeah. Just design temperatures. Go figure. Yeah. And I apologize if I went a little too far in the weeds. That is. No, 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 no. I think you gave us a flavor. There are weeds out there. So if someone wanted to learn more about what you do and your business, what's the best contact? You can go to my website. It's meanhvac.com. Real simple. And my focus is not, I apologize for anybody looking for designs. I can be contracted to do design work, particularly probably in the summer. But the focus of the business is training people to do good HVAC design. Very good. I know the logo for your business. Does that have something to do with what you do? And your name, perhaps? (laughs) Good for you. I did not know anybody would would ever ask me about that. Yes. So I'm clearly a nerd, and I just founded a company called Mean HVAC 
And the nerdy part of my brain said, average HVAC? Really? Is that what you're going to name your company? Because mean is the average. But I wanted to go with my last name and I wanted it to be catchy. Meany HVAC didn't have the same ring as mean HVAC. So I went with it. Nice. So counteract the whole average HVAC thing. The slogan of the company is well above average. And the logo is an up arrow and the symbol for average X bar and smash them together and you get above average. Above average. Perfect. <laughs> really, it was just meant to be a cool looking logo because I didn't expect anybody to decode that. But hey, talking to another nerd here, Alex, come on. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Oh, and I, I also knew that there would be people out there who would be like, what's that? I know that's a thing. What are you doing there? Yeah. What's the purpose there? Yeah. Very nice. Thanks again for cracking open this first part, this task one in the ResNet 310 standard. And it isn't so much what our typical listeners are going to do, but it's what they have to work with. So showing them everything that's behind there. I'm seeing more and more people get into the overlap game here. Third-party HVAC design is very much a thing. Yeah. And the skill set that a lot of energy modelers bring to the table is very similar to the skill set you need to do a load calculation. It's building surface areas, insulation, it's describing a building envelope, something a lot of them already do. Interesting. There's a lot of folks on your side of the, we'll call it your side of the fence. You're on all sides of the fence, right. but <laughs> your listener's side of the fence who are hopping that fence and getting involved in the HVAC side of it. Very interesting. Thanks again, Alex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Res Talk podcast. We hope you got some perspectives on the ANSI ResNet ECA Standard 310, and especially this first topic or first task in that process, design. Here's a quote for today from Charles Eanes, an American designer. The details are not the details. They make the design. If you're interested in feeding back to ResNet on what you heard here, would you like to hear a new topic covered or just have a general question, please send an email to info at resnet, R-E-S-N-E-T dot U-S. If you've not subscribed, please do so. And as always, thank you for listening to ResTalk. Take care. Thanks for listening to the ResTalk podcast. This podcast is hosted by Bill Spohn and is a production of ResNet, the Residential Energy Services Network. The best way to listen to this podcast is to subscribe on an iPhone using the podcast app or on an Android device by downloading the Stitcher app and searching for ResTalk. If you are willing, a review on iTunes of the podcast app will help others find the show and would be very much appreciated. We look forward to talking again soon on ResTalk.